Your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network shows and hosts are in your car, outdoors, and wherever you need them to be. Listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Go Green Radio, brought to you by Covanta Energy. Reduce, reuse, recycle, rethink renewable energy and energy from waste. This program will help start you thinking about how to protect our world and its important resources. Now here's the host for Go Green Radio, Jill Buck. Welcome to Go Green Radio. I am thrilled to death that you could join us today to all of our listeners because this show is going to blow your mind. We've got guests today who are senior military officials. We also have a senior U.S. Senator. Uh, senator Warner is going to be coming on the show. And we're going to be talking about um, alternative fuels and energy conservation on the part of the military in a way that we never have before. We're actually going to have senior military officials talking to us about some of the energy innovations that the military has undertaken, but maybe even more importantly than what they're doing is why they're doing it. And I'm so excited to have our first guest on today. His name is Major General Anthony Jackson. And for those of you who are civilians out there, a Major General is a two-star general. He was a Marine Corps infantry officer. And some of you know that my husband was also a Marine Corps infantry officer. And I am standing at attention as I ask the questions <laughs> that I'll be talking to, um, uh, to General Jackson about. But welcome, sir. I'm so pleased to have you on the show. Well, thank you, Jill. I'm glad to be here. Well, I watched a video of a speech you gave about a year ago at Camp Pendleton. I have good memories of Camp Pendleton. We were stationed there. Um, and the speech was entitled, or at least it was on the, the Vimeo site that I saw, Should We Be Content to Shed Blood for Oil? It was a great and truly motivating speech. But, you know, there are people in this country who who – would say that the U.S. hasn't gone to war for oil. We've been in the Middle East fighting for freedom and democracy, and I don't think that's completely off the mark. But how do you help people understand the relationship between our nation's dependence on oil and the loss of American service members? Can you make that connection for us, sir? Yeah. um, Well, Jill, it's kind of – actually, we've been kind of engaged in a war in the Middle East with our – soldiers, sailors, airmen, marines, and even coast guardmen, uh, since about 1990. Um, And we really have to ask ourselves, how did we get there? Why did we get there? And uh, some of your audience may remember as far back as 1973, standing gas lines when we had there was the Yom Kippur War in the Middle East between Israel, Egypt, and Syria. And uh, we kind of got a chokehold on our oil supply, and we stood in gas lines and to get our 10-gallon allocation. Well, fast forward several years uh, to 1990, and I had August. I was a young major sitting in the Pentagon, and uh, just my first two weeks there, and I 
received a phone call on the phone that I was monitoring, and it was from a very panicked voice on the other end and a heavy accent, but I really didn't understand. And um, there was there was a real urgency in his voice. And I said, just a minute, sir, if you just slow down a little bit, perhaps I can, I can uh, help you and understand what you're saying. And then he, he very, he slowed down and caught himself, caught his breath. And he said, I am in the American embassy in Kuwaiti city, the Iraqis, the Iraqis, they're here. He said, listen, mm. and I could even tell that he, he put the, phone next to some place where I could hear the commotion in the background, and it was the sound of machine gun fire. Oh, my gosh. And so I said, just a minute, sir, I think you want to speak to a general. <laughs> <laughs> and so I gave it so to a general, funny. and within about an hour, General Colin Powell and all of the heavies in the Pentagon were around the table, and I had been relegated to that point. Major, you look big enough, why don't you just guard that door over there? Make sure <laughs> nobody disturbs us. And from that moment, from the time I got home the next morning and told my wife, honey, we're at war. And uh, the our airplanes were flying to the Middle East, and uh, we started moving troops and ships and everything else. And really, since August 1990, we've raised a whole generation of Americans who have only known us to be at war of some sort in the Middle East, as we are today. Mm-hmm. And you have to ask yourself the real question is, is why? And it's because uh, we have never gotten hold of our hunger for Middle East, Middle Eastern fossil fuels. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and, and I've, I've, I've been to the Middle East. I deployed with the 1st Marine Expeditionary Force 2004-2005. I was the deputy commander of Marine Forces Central Command, which is the, all the Marines in the Middle East. And I visited all the battle, battlefields in Iraq and Afghanistan, and so you get uh, as you as as you and I would serve again in the military if it was if it was still my time, but you have to ask yourself why are we not only uh, spending billions and trillions of dollars on our war machine in the Middle East, but nearly five thousand lives in in uh, Iraq and two thousand lives in Afghanistan. And it comes to our footprint in the Middle East. It is both, yes, it can be an engine, and it is an engine for good, but at the same time, that good is really preventing Middle East oil from being a chokehold on our economy, on our national security, because every ship, every airplane, every truck, every tank that we drive and fly and sail um, are, are, are fueled by, those, by that. And so your economy, your national defense is wrapped around it. So we have developed fleets to protect it. We've sent soldiers, sailors, Marines, and Coast Guardsmen to protect it. And we're still engaged in the Middle East. At the same time, it incentivizes those harsh elements in the Middle East, our presence, our very presence. It incentivizes them for some of their violence. So it's, uh, I mean, they're not good people. They don't have good methodologies. They don't even treat their own people well. But it gives them an incentive and motivation. So I think that the what we're doing, the Secretary of the Navy really came down hard on us, and uh, all his admirals and generals in uh, 2009 said, hey, we've got to do our part to cut our dependence on Middle Eastern oil. Mm-hmm. And it was the same time that I took command of all Marine Corps bases in the kind of west of the Mississippi River, 
And so as we did our new construction, we took into account all kinds of energy savings. So we, as we bought new vehicles, we bought uh, hybrids and uh, hydrogen-powered vehicles and gasoline-powered vehicles. We cut our fossil fuel percentage in our bases in about two and a half years by over 30%. Oh, uh, we just one of our bases out here, Marine Corps Air Station Miramar, just uh, achieved 100% of its uh, energy credits by capturing methane from a city dump and putting up solar plants. We've got wow. the wind turbines in our Marine Corps logistics base in Barstow that uh, get about 30% of their energy. And so all of the bases that I was in charge of, and you'll see this throughout the Department of Defense as the generals and admirals. Uh, have have really gotten on board from all the services to really cut down on their use because we recognize that the cost of uh, fossil fuels is much more than the $4 a gallon or so that Americans pay because it's in the lives of Americans, it's in the vast military ma- machine we have to protect our uh, dependence on uh, Middle Eastern oil. And uh, so it, 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 it's really more costly then uh, then we're getting it at a discount when we buy it at the pump. That's that's the truth. Yeah. And, you know, I think there are a lot of young veterans coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan who are recognizing another piece of this, and that is that the weapons that are being used against them while they're over there are very likely being funded by oil money. Yeah, you kind of wonder where, where does the money come from. Yeah, and, there's only and, so know. many sources of revenue for... Yeah those weapons being used against our troops as well. Right. As we pump money into the gas stations and it goes back to those Middle Eastern uh, folks, there's a lot of them that don't support what we're doing over there. That's so that right. money is turned around, and, 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 and some of it, I am sure, uh, at least my best guess would be it would be funneled back into the same, very same machine that then uh, builds the IED, mm-hmm. that then uh, cripples or kills um, someone on the road. If you That's took right. our, what does it cost us when we uh, send fuel from a refinery back into Pakistan to be trucked to through the Khyber Pass to support soldiers and Marines in Afghanistan? <clears throat> if you took all of the cost there, and this is not the cost in blood, you are getting into the hundreds of dollars per gallon. Okay. Yes. You are, and now the cost of blood is you put 50 trucks on the road, um, 70% of those trucks, 35 of them, have either fuel or water on board, and we're going to pay uh, one in 50 trucks, we're going to pay with the loss of a Marine or soldier to death or injury because mm-hmm. that IED, that ambush is going to cost us a life or a limb every 50 trucks. Wow. And so it's, uh, I mean, that's just the statistical data that comes out of it. So if you look at the cost in, 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 in blood alone, uh, it is, uh, you know, you're talking about a, a 20-year-old who a couple of years ago was your next-door neighbor's kid in high school. Yes. And uh, and people don't always think, but even though we have a very good all-volunteer force, most of the people who actually do the fighting and the dying were, you know, 5th, 6th, 7th graders uh, when 
9-11 occurred. That is correct. Yeah. And it's it's sad to think about looking at the, the cost of action versus the cost of inaction. I know that you know we're in a tremendous amount of budget cuts in this country, and right. some people might say, well, it's just too costly to give the military mm-hmm. you know, a budget for research and development and alternative biofuels. Yeah. But the cost of inaction um, yeah. is almost more than we can bear in our hearts, maybe but, not in our pocketbooks. I, I'm not sure what you would say about that. But, yeah, uh, I, there, there's been a lot of fuss about, uh, especially what the Department of the Navy has been doing in regards to research and development of biofuel that would act as a supplement or a replacement, a drop-in fuel to the fuels that we currently use. And we've been partnering with both industry and many uh, universities to try to come up with a solution. And we, the, the, the Navy sailed this great green fleet out of Hawaii a couple of weeks ago, which used uh, both in its aircraft, helicopters, and ships, it used a, uh, a biofuel. And I've read com- some complaints that, well, it was $15 a gallon or $25 a gallon to do that. And some members of Congress have said, oh, that's exorbitant. But what I would say back, it, it, first of all, it was an experiment. You have to have a proof of concept before you can actually come up with, okay, this is workable. Now how can we make it more cost-effective? Mm-hmm. I guess you could take some modern examples or some old examples of where DOD, Department of Defense Research, has developed something. Let's take the Internet developed by um, uh, DARPA to improve battlefield communications for the military. Mm-hmm. and uh, invested a lot of money. When we were investing money in the, in the research to come up with the technology where we could have something called the Internet, uh, if, if somebody did a dollar-cost analysis, they'd say, well, why didn't you just run a wire from <laughs> point A to point B or run a can and a string from point A to point B? <laughs> it's cheaper, okay? But that research and development has given us what we have now. Let's say, uh, let's take one more example that people would be fairly familiar with. We invested a lot of money in the Department of Defense so our troops wouldn't get lost on the floors of deserts or in jungles. And, and, and we, put, we launched multiple millions of dollar satellites into space. And, and, and these satellites became the global positioning system. And it's what everybody uses now to navigate from point A to point B or to track how far they run or ride their bikes or whatever. And it is a very usable thing that people have made, um, have gotten great value from. But it was developed as a result of the scientists developing something to make our military systems more efficient. Well, okay. and that's a great example yeah. of, you know, the, the way that the military has in so many innovations led from the front, which yeah. is exactly what we do. Mm-hmm. General Jackson, I, I could talk to you all day, sir. It was yeah. so great having you on. We've got to take a quick commercial break, but when we return, there's much more Go Green Radio, folks, so don't go away. There's more right after this. News, opinion, your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787, 1-866-472-5787, voiceamerica.com. 
Come back to your senses. Imagine a radio show that will help you recover your common sense. Host Leah Brenda Smith is a health and wellness specialist who will explain techniques designed to help you recover from the stress of your life. It's all about how you respond to your thoughts. A little bit of self-awareness can go a long way in helping you to relax and enjoy your life. Tune in to Come Back to Your Senses Radio, live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all our show archives on demand. All from your iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh, yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. This segment will be joined by Lieutenant General Castellaw. Now, one of the things that I was really excited about in your bio, sir, was that you're an aviator. And I used to be stationed near what used to be a, a naval air station, Miramar. It's now a Marine Corps Naval Air Station or, or uh, air station in Miramar. But that you flew Harriers. Um, very excited to have you on the show, sir. That's one of my favorite airframes, actually. What I tell everybody is, is uh, during World War II, uh, Miramar was Marine, and so we let you guys in the Navy barge for 50 years, and then we <laughs> took it back. <laughs> well, the only reason that I was there for it was one of two reasons. Either I was watching the Miramar Air Show, which happened every year, and, and the Harriers were a big highlight of that. Or secondly, I was putting somebody in the brig. I was a legal officer. So when somebody got in my, you know, got in trouble at my command at the Fleet Training Center, San Diego, we had to take them to Miramar to the brig. So uh, it was a good time. But welcome to the show, General. Uh, I sat in on a press conference at which you spoke a couple of weeks ago that was put on by the Pew Charitable Trust. And I was very interested in a parallel that you drew between the legendary Great White Fleet that the Navy launched long, long ago and the Great Green Fleet that was recently launched, um, as General Jackson said, on biofuels. And I was wondering if you might share that parallel story with us. Sure. And, you know, Tony's already set me up for this with uh, talking about the Internet and the other things. But when you go back uh, even further in history, uh, you know, in the Civil War, we were able to encourage the uh, building of the iron industry, which laid the basis 
uh, for later on in that century, the steel industry. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that came out of creating a steel industry, of course, was a great white fleet that Theodore Roosevelt sailed around the world in 1907-1909. But to think about that, when they started building those 16 battleships that went around the world, we were not anywhere near being the world's uh, cheapest or largest uh, producer of steel. And what we did, the Department of Defense at that time, the War Department and the Navy Department, they were separate, went ahead and paid more uh, to buy U.S. steel to help generate a domestic base, industrial base. And so by the time that uh, 1909 that the uh, fleet came back, the United States was the number one producer in steel, and the cost of the steel was the lowest. And so that's just an example of how, you know, the, the uh, military can be a market mover. Now, the Green Fleet, what it typifies, just like the White Fleet uh, indicated that we were no longer a regional power but a global power, not tethered to our coast, uh, what the Green Fleet does is show that we have the capability of not being tethered uh, to oil, that we can develop alternative sources that will allow us to... Uh, uh, range free, just like uh, like we're, uh, the White Fleet did, and like we're doing now. So uh, this, uh, but without having to be tethered uh, to foreign oil and to petroleum. So that's the big uh, comparison between those two events. Tell us a little bit more about this uh, great Green Fleet. You know, uh, what exactly is the test? What what is the project? Uh, a demonstration uh, for those who may not have heard about it. Well, you being in the Navy, you know that uh, the big power of the Navy is the carrier strike group. And so what you had was the great ship Nimitz, which is, of course, nuclear-powered, mm-hmm. had 91 aircraft on it. And those 91 aircraft uh, were able to use a mixture of biofuel and regular jet fuel. And they you know, banked and looped and did all the things uh, fighter pilots and helicopter guys do uh, operating on that fuel, and it was just a drop-in fuel, meaning that, hey, nothing had to change on the airplanes in order to operate. And, of course, the Nimitz has escorts. Uh, Three of those escorts, a cruiser and two destroyers, operated on a mix of F-76 marine diesel and uh, biofuel, and they did their maneuvers, uh, protected the Nimitz, did what they needed to do without any impact because they could use that fuel, too. And that means that, you know, we can... Uh, produce biofuel uh, that is usable in the uh, existing uh, ships, airplanes, tanks, uh, trucks, Humvees, whatever we have now, and that reduces. The military hates to have a single point of failure, and what this does is reduces our dependence on oil and reduces uh, that single point of failure that uh, we hate so much in the military. Talk about that. For a lot of civilians, the single point of failure concept is is new. What would that mean if you know on a, on a battlefield or or out to sea as we're engaging in our mission? What would that What would that mean? You know, Tony talked a while ago about seventy uh, three and seventy four, and and about the uh, the Gulf War, the first Gulf War in the nineties, uh, et cetera. You know. As a uh, aviator, the only time I ever had too much fuel was when I was on fire one time. And so, <laughs> half the 
Americans is, is it the military, in order to conduct the operations, in order to train, in order to go into combat, in order to run the garrisons, has to have a dependable source of energy. If you're dependent on one source of energy, that's a single point of failure, and your enemy looks for opportunities uh, to uh, attack that single point of failure. So closing the Straits of Hormuz, uh, uh, hitting some of the uh, transmission lines in the United States, uh, uh, impacting uh, those sometimes tenuous uh, lines that provide our fuel, uh, impacts our ability to have continuous operations. Uh, so we want to get away from that. We want to have other ways of getting our energy and biofuel uh, for the Navy uh, provides that, and for the rest of the military. Well, and it wouldn't be a bad idea to have that as a civilian application either. I mean, just this week we had a fire in one refinery uh, here, the Chevron plant in California. That's impacting fuel for the entire West Coast and the price of it. Last year, one line between Arizona and California, one electricity transmission line went down, and all of a sudden there was a blackout in three states. So uh, I think even civilians can understand the need for uh, options and for Plan Bs when it comes to to getting our energy supplied to us. Now, you mentioned this drop-in uh, jet fuel solution, and I know you're from this great state of Tennessee, which is also headquarters to FedEx. And the CEO of FedEx, Fred Smith, is well-known for his forward thinking on ways to get America off of foreign oil. And he's expressed an interest in partnering with the military on these drop-in fuel uh solutions. Talk to us about the importance of developing these public-private partnerships between the military and companies like FedEx that could use the advanced biofuels that the military is developing. Yeah, uh, Fred Smith uh, has partnered in, uh, on a uh, Energy Security Council with a couple of my real heroes, uh, former Marine Commandants uh, P.X. Kelly and and Jim Conway, He's, uh, on a bipartisan effort, again, to reduce our dependence. And uh, he's announced uh, that the strategy at FedEx is to use uh, 50-50 drop-in jet fuel, the same uh, type of fuel that uh, we're flying those fighters off the uh, Nimitz with, and also to replace his fossil fuel-driven vans with electric vans. So he understands uh, the the concept of, uh, you know, energy security and, and what we need to do. So as we continue to develop, uh, in the military, uh, this fuel, uh, biofuel, then what we're seeing is the civilian market is uh, piggybacking on it. Uh, they have the opportunity to benefit, just like the, the Great White Fleet did from uh, our steel industry, just like uh, uh, all of us uh, are benefiting from the Internet, and just like uh, those of us that may be uh, navigationally challenged or are benefiting from uh, the GPS satellites uh, that were put up. So what we're seeing here is is a continuation of how the military and the civilian environment uh, communities have always cooperated uh, using the advances that both uh, are able to get in order uh, to work together. So, uh, you know, I think... Fred Smith is one of the poster childs of uh, uh, children of being able to do this. 
Well, and I can't but think, help but think that that would help bri- drive the price down as well. The more, uh, you know, private companies that begin to invest in this and purchase those products, the, the more the price point would become even more favorable for the military as well. Um, you know, at the press conference at which you spoke, General, you made mention of, uh, we talked a little bit about climate change. One of the journalists asked you about that. And, you know, there are those who, just don't support action to lessen our carbon output. They're not 100% sure that climate change is either caused or exacerbated by human behavior. And so uh, they're not in favor of taking any action at all. But what are your views about climate change and the need for 100% certainty before we take action? I think there are two elements here. The first element is uh, what the military is doing, uh, highlighted by the Navy and using biofuel, highlighted by the Marine Corps and using uh, backpack uh, solar panels at forward operating bases, uh, uh, highlighted uh, by the Air Force and uh, putting solar uh, panels on uh, on their quarters across the nation uh, and the other services efforts that are that are involved, uh, and and that's cutting. Uh, the uh, single source of failure uh, to uh, to fossil fuels and and to uh, petroleum in order uh, to get the energy uh, cheaper eventually and also uh, because uh, it, it gives us an opportunity to develop uh, uh, a, a commercially viable uh, source in the United States. And also in other places, the Australians were involved with us uh, when we were doing the Green Fleet exercise, and they put uh, biofuel in, in one of those aircraft. So uh, that's one element of it. The other element, I think, is is the military recognizes that climate change is occurring. Uh, what we see, for instance, the Coast Guard is starting to move uh, assets uh, Further north, uh, as the uh, receding ice uh, allows a more uh, exploration of, uh, of potential sources of uh, products in the uh, in the Arctic, uh, mm-hmm. so uh, we have to be prepared to act up there. Uh, so what I think you're seeing is, you know, those two elements uh, that are coinciding, and uh, and that, uh, you know. There's a lot of discussion about, well, okay, uh, why are we doing it? Well, the reason we're doing it, in the, I think, in the military is, one, is to cut that single source of failure, and the other one is is because uh, the stability that we have to continue to ensure as we see these impacts uh, around our nation. I always remember I went to the Jordan River, and that is a, a area of conflict uh, between the Arabs and Israelis, and as the water dries up there, there's a potential for instability there, and we have to be prepared for to uh, react in those kinds of situations. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, and I and you said something that really piqued my interest at the press conference. That you know, sometimes when you're 80 percent sure of something, that's enough to take action. And and I think uh, it, you know the the military has a whole. Uh, you know, a whole document I was reading it the other day about the impacts of climate change and some of the 
the mission uh, implications of that for various branches of the military. General, it was a pleasure having you on. Thank you so much for joining us on Go Green Radio. We've got to take a quick commercial break, but when we return, we'll be joined by Senator John Warner. So don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Tolvanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh, yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Tolvanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Have you ever wanted to ask a direct question to a private investigator? If so, you'll want to listen for the Private Eye Nightline with private investigator John Siakio. John and his guest experts will answer your questions about infidelity, drug issues, custody, restraining orders, and more. Sometimes there are sensitive issues involving a family member or other loved one. We're here to help. The Private Eye Nightline is broadcast live every Wednesday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. Family caregivers face some tough challenges every day in caring for a partner, parent, child, sibling, friend, neighbor, or even coworker. You are there to provide the care that these people need after everyone else has gone home. Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley will provide you with a social networking experience. You'll hear from experts and others who are experiencing the same things, and together you will promote a common cause. Tune in to Family Caregivers Unite, live every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific, on Voice America Variety. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. So glad that you could all join us. I have to admit, our next guest has me a bit starstruck. Um, I'm happy to welcome Senator John Warner uh, to our show. Welcome to Go Green Radio, Senator Warner. It's great to have yes. you. <laughs> I've enjoyed listening to the uh, previous witnesses. Well, and, and I, I was standing at attention for them because uh, you know, our two-star and our three-star generals were on. I'm still standing at attention, sir. Um, you know, we have you on, and you've got such a unique perspective on the issues that we're addressing today. For our listeners who may not know your full bio, of course, you were a Marine Corps officer during the Korean War. And so that gives you an understanding of tactical military operations. And then you were the Secretary of the Navy, so, of course, you understand operational and strategic 
strategic needs of the military. And then as the longest standing uh, member of the U.S. Senate, Senate from the state of Virginia and chairman of the Armed Forces Committee, you understand the political and budgetary process that the military has to go through. And so I'd like to ask you, from this wide breadth of knowledge and experience, how do you view alternative energy and advanced biofuels as a strategic advantage for military readiness and battlefield performance? Good. I'd like to go back and just drop in one fact. I also was a seaman in the United States Navy in the last year of World War II, and jokingly, oh, people good. people say, well, he couldn't be too bright because he had to go to boot camp twice, Navy and then <laughs> Marines, and you're right. But I'm everlastingly indebted to the military for the training and the leadership and the support in the GI Bill, so... Let's move on to your question. I think I'd like to tee off on one of your witnesses who spoke, and you did too, to the tragic loss of that refinery in California. That um, caught everybody off guard, tragic situation, and it immediately impacted the life quality of people in California, and they'll, you know, you got tough people out there, they'll grit their teeth and carry on. But the military cannot, and I repeat, cannot operate their forces worldwide, particularly in those areas where there's deep threats and conflicts, on, well, if we lose a source, we'll just hunker down like Californians are going to do, and be it blackouts or whatever, we'll just wait it out until we can get the current back on. We in the military must have a absolute confidence that our energy needs can be met 24-7. And therefore, I commend, beginning with Bob Gates, Secretary of Defense, now Leon Panetta, the service secretaries, and particularly the Secretary of the Navy, well, all of them. I've dealt with all of them here in the three years I've been privileged to work for the Pew Charitable Trust on energy. But they have made the plans to have a variety, cross-section of all available sources, wind, solar, hydro, bio, and then, of course, fossil fuel. The military have gone through, and your witnesses touched on it, but I'd like to emphasize, everything in the inventory of the Pentagon, they've tried to see, can it operate on half fossil fuel, half biofuel, for example. And almost all of our aircraft now can operate with that formula, be they in the Air Force, the Marine Corps, Navy, or the Army Hilo Forces. So the military has moved out on all of the bases, and I've visited many of these bases in the last three years, They are trying in every way, number one, to impress upon every soldier, sailor, airman, and Marine how valuable energy is to them, be they in the United States on a base or forward deployed. So military uniformed people today are highly conscious of the relevance between energy and their daily mission and their daily safety and the welfare of their family back on the basis. So that's why biofuel is an emerging source of energy 
comes from various means, but we have to link up with the agricultural people, the aquatic people who run the ponds that come up the algae, the many sources that potentially can contribute to biofuel. Now, there was a good discussion about the Great White Fleet. The only thing that was left out when Teddy Roosevelt made the right decision to send it, Congress objected vehemently. Then it got halfway around the world, and Congress saw the publicity that it was generating back home all positive. Now they piled on support to president. <laughs> One old senator called in to the president to say, I'd like to be where you are when the fleet returns. president says, fine, I'll have you standing next to me. And the senator said, what can I do for you? And the president said, well, I've got no money to bring the white fleet home from halfway around the world. Send me money. <laughs> so there's been a long history between the Navy moving out particularly on sources of energy going from wind to coal to power and now nuclear, uh, and other branches of the government, the Navy, have, that is Department of Defense and so forth, have done equally well. Not going to single one out better than the other. But the point is we've got to have diversity and we've got to look to have constant availability. We cannot shut down what we're doing as a consequence of a power outage. That's why on our bases now we're trying to look at alternative means, other grids, and so forth to take care of what could be a power failure that affects not only the civilian community, but the hookup to the local military base. Mm -hmm. So that's the reason why the Department of Defense, down from the Secretary of Defense to the sailor and soldier and privates, they understand the relevance of energy to their mission and lifestyle. I love it. Now, I know that you and several hundred other veterans recently signed an open letter to Congress and to the White House asking them to support the military's work on advanced biofuels. And I'm just wondering if you'd share with us specifically what does the military need from Congress and what are some of the obstacles to that support being well, rendered in full? Uh, as you mentioned, I spent 30 years as a U.S. senator, and I have a pretty good understanding about how Congress works. And the reason for that letter is that some members of the Senate, particularly, and some in the House, likewise, are concerned at the high cost per gallon for the biofuels. Now, your citizens today, depending where you are, are paying three and a fraction to four to maybe five and a fraction dollars at the gas pump. And when the citizens read stories about the Great Green Fleet, which was, I think, a very proper and forward-looking exercise, commend the Secretary and the Admiral Greenert, who organized it, uh, they saw that we used the drop-in biofuel. Well, some of that fuel cost $20, $25 a gallon. And the citizen is saying, wait a minute, I'm paying 3 to 5 they're paying 25 for this bio stuff. And naturally, Congress has to be responsible and accountable to its constituents and answer the angry mail about the waste, fraud, and abuse and all this bio stuff. But it requires the patience of the Congress to try and let the average citizen, struggling in every way now in this tough economy, trying to make it work, understand that the military have to do a certain amount of experimentation 
with all forms of energy in order to have that constant source available. And it really is a public relations difficulty with some members and their constituents. It's hard to do. I had to do it many times. So Congress is beginning to say, with regard to the biofuel program, hey, wait a minute, this thing is just too expensive. Stand back and take a look. And this is the controversy that primarily generated the letter. And we're saying, bear with it, Congress. Do the best you can to keep your assistance constituents well-informed while we try and drive down the price of the bio. And there's hope on the horizon because you brought out how public partner, private sector partner partnerships have to work. Mm-hmm. And that's why the Secretary of Navy is partnered with the Secretary of Agriculture and Energy to support the Green Fleet operation fuel needs and other needs because the overall usage of biofuel by the military would optimally be maybe only 10%. The other 90%, whatever, maybe 80%, would have to be utilized by the private sector, the airlines, the trucking companies, and other things in order to bring the cost of biofuel down to where it's commensurate with the cost of the local gas pump. And then the constituents will go on to other problems and not be so concerned about the excessive costs of the bio today. This mm-hmm. is going to take time. We have all understood that, Who those of us who are watching it. And we're making progress because the costs of biofuels have dropped considerably since the early experimentation, say, just 18 months, two years ago. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think that what's so exciting about this is that um, the civilian implications of the military's experimentation with these fuels is so exciting to think about uh, all these existing vehicles, uh, whether they're personal vehicles or commercial vehicles already on the road, being able to use these drop-in solutions uh, for biofuels. I, that is just so exciting, not just from a, an alternative fuels perspective, but again, from an emissions perspective, the environmental and human health implications of being able to deploy those kinds of advanced biofuels nationwide are thrilling. I mean, it's really a thrilling moment. Well, let's, let's take one example, uh, an aircraft engine. The engines used on our commercial aircraft are just almost carbon copies of many of the engines used by the military. They're closely related. The military did take taxpayers' funds quite properly and do the research and development, then the actual experimentation to prove that that engine in the military can work on, say, a 50-50 ratio, which is average, of drop-in and fossil fuel. Now, the aircraft industry can say, we can take that test, fly it to our own engines, which is very similar to the military, and we can make it work. So the aircraft manufacturers, airlines, so forth, benefited greatly from the expenditure in the military budget of the R&D to prove 
that aircraft engine, be it on a military or civilian aircraft, can work with drop-in fuel. That's fantastic. Senator, thank you so much for enlightening us. It was wonderful having you. Let's go forward because this country is dependent on the broadest base because we don't know when one source is going to dry up and we have to go to the others. Well, thank you, sir, for your you. leadership. Carry and I on. Appreciate bye-bye. It. <laughs> yes, sir. Bye-bye. Don't go away, folks. We've got much more Go Green Radio right after this quick commercial break. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. Yeah! If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. one 472 5787 That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%? 43%? Or 14%. Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh, yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. So glad that you could all join us today. Our final guest of this show is Phyllis Catino. She is the director of the Pew Charitable Trust Clean Energy Program, and she's going to be able to give us a lot of facts and figures around this issue of supporting the military's work on advanced biofuels and what that could mean not just to military readiness, but also to our civilian population and some of the opportunities that this uh, research and development could open up nationwide to uh, transportation and and energy innovation across the country. Welcome, Phyllis. Glad to have you on Go Green Radio. Well, thanks, Jill, for having me. It's great to be here. Well, I was reading on your website. I was all over it before we did the show. And according to the research that I was looking at that Pew has done, the U.S. imports about 49% of all of our liquid fuel, and that is primarily oil. And it said also that, furthermore, DOD, or Department of Defense, is the largest consumer of liquid fuel in the world, actually spending $11 billion a year. If Congress supports the military's research and development work on advanced biofuels, how much could we actually reduce our petroleum-based liquid fuel consumption as a nation? Well, that's a good question, and I don't think that we yet know the answer, but it certainly holds a lot of promise. Um, you know, when you have an early adopter like the Department of Defense that can really prove out a technology or, in this case, an advanced biofuel, and there are other adopters, large adopters, that are ready and, and willing and able after the DOD uh, um, proves it out, 
I think it could have a big, big impact. Obviously, the airlines are very interested in these advanced biofuels. And, and frankly, we've seen the Department of Defense serve this purpose before. We've, we've seen them commercialize, for instance, GPS, global positioning systems, or create the Internet, which has obviously had a huge impact on our society, nuclear power. There are a lot of, of examples of how the military has been an, an early adopter and developer, and it's been great for our society. Mm-hmm. And as I understand it, it's not just the Department of Defense that's going it alone on this project. Um, as I understand it, the Department of Energy and the USDA are also involved, and as you mentioned, commercial airlines. Talk to us about some of the roles and responsibilities that these various partners in this project are playing. Well, sure. The, well, obviously, the Department of Energy, the U.S., the Department of Agriculture, and the Department of Navy have entered into to a memorandum of understanding that they will all put up some seed money, $170 million each, to assist in the construction of biorefineries, because that's really the barrier to advanced biofuels, is to get them to scale with refineries. It's the infrastructure that we need, because the fuels have actually been tested out um, very well. So they're all working together, um, and, you know, the USDA has already begun. The Department of Energy has, has begun as well, and the Department of Navy is really has, uh, it depends upon this Congress and whether or not they'll be able to move forward, which we certainly hope that they will be able to. But obviously they all bring different strengths since these advanced biofuels are grown from, geez, Montana to Maine to, to uh, Florida, all over the country really. Um, it's a great opportunity for agriculture, and that's why the USDA is involved. Obviously, this is a, a good role for the Department of Energy, new technologies, and certainly the Department of the Navy. Um, so that's why they're all working together on this mm-hmm. project. You know, Senator Warner alluded to the cost of biofuels uh, in the last segment, but I'd like for you to talk just a little bit more about that. I mean, of course, the first generation of biofuels were pretty expensive, but as I understand it, pricing is already beginning to change, and I'm wondering if you could talk about how much it's changed and, furthermore, what the expectation of the pricing might be should we continue this work through the military's research and development. Sure. Well, it's come down um, significantly over, as, as I heard Senator Warner say, about 90%. The, the U.S. Navy, obviously, in their recent exercise um, off the coast of Hawaii with the Great Green Fleet, they purchased, uh, it was about $27 a gallon. Um, some analysts are predicting that it will be cost competitive with traditional fuels by 2018. Some in the industry say that will be much sooner. And I think it really depends upon if we can get you know, these constru- this construction of these biorefineries up and running. But um, it's coming down dramatically. That's really the barrier to them being cost competitive is the, the refining structure. What industry will tell you is if we had our own factory, we could do it today um, and be cost competitive. So I think that's, that's you know, that is why we are so um, focused on these biorefineries that the, the, the three agencies are working on. Mm-hmm. You know, I can't help but think about the, you know, the farmers and because these are going to be things that are grown here in the U.S. With the severe drought that we're experiencing this year, a lot of our nation's farmers are really hurting and there's a lot of pressure to pass a farm bill. Is there any link between congressional budgetary support for the military's biofuel work and the current farm bill? Well, there is. there are energy provisions in the farm bill that relate to advanced biofuels, um, 
first generation biofuels and others. But there, but in terms of the military's role, that is really centered in the Armed Services Committee and the National Defense Authorization Act. And that's what we think will be debated um, in September or in October of this year and move forward. As you know, that's a bill that's taken up, debated, and passed each and every year. It's like mm-hmm. a, appropriations bills. They must be done. And so we're we're anticipating that this is really going to uh, going to move forward. But while there are some similarities, it's really this is a very distinct issue for the military. Mm-hmm. You know, this being a presidential year, things that would be sort of standard operating procedure in Congress are uh, contentious to say the least, and and you really can't take anything for granted. What can everyday citizens, or maybe even in more particular terms, um, what can veterans do to join the cause to ensure that this funding and this these appropriations are realized? Well, absolutely. I think that, look, energy innovation is critical to our national security, to our economic security. I know Senator Warner talked about that in your earlier segment. And if if folks really want to ensure that the Department of Defense can continue to innovate when it comes to energy, they really need to pick up the phone and call their member of Congress and tell them they want them to support the military or write a letter, send an email, but they really need their voices to be heard. And veterans are particularly important because they have, over the last 10 years, have real-life experiences with the danger of the transport of, of oil or dependence upon oil. So those are voices that I think are particularly potent on this issue with members of Congress. So I just encourage any of your listeners out there, if you think this is an important issue, if you want America to be more secure, if you want America to be more economically uh, secure, if you want to continue um, the military in this on this road, then please let your voice be heard. Pick up the phone, call, write, or, or even visit with your member. Thank you, Phyllis. Great words of wisdom, and I encourage all of our listeners to do just that. This is not a partisan issue. This is an American issue, and I appreciate you being on. I appreciate all of our guests for being on and talking about this from the military's point of view um, and all the hope and all the excitement around the military kind of leading from the front and providing us with some civilian options for energy innovation. Very exciting. Well, thank you all for listening to us on Go Green Radio. We'll be here same time, same place next week week. Until then, have a wonderful week and do something in your life to go green. Did you get some terrific ideas from today's show? Please join us for more next Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time. It's Go Green Radio with Jill Buck here on Voice America. Go Green Radio is proudly sponsored by Covanta Energy, a leader in providing renewable energy solutions for a cleaner world. Visit www.covantaenergy.com for more information. We'll see you here next week.